Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Dave Pickles, the CTO and co-founder of The Trade Desk, and we discuss the balance between privacy and connecting consumers with the products they want, how to practice servant leadership for your team, and how screening for defensiveness can produce a much more collaborative organization. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Hello, Dave. Hello. How you doing, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Dude, life is good. I actually, uh, I made bread today. You sound like you're an introvert. <laughs> I <Are> sound you... <laughs> like, no. Oh, because that's what they're doing. They're hiding out <laughs> making bread. You're like, I love this pandemic thing. I don't have to leave the house. I bake. <laughs> no, I'm actually at the office. It just used to be like a therapist office, so it kind of has a homey feel. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've never made bread before. And today was my first time making bread because uh, I was trying to do like the gluten-free thing and all the gluten-free breads I thought tasted horrible at the store. And so I heard through a friend of a friend about this stuff called Miracle Mix. And so I bought some and gave it a shot. And I was like, whoa, it is like the best thing ever. You wouldn't even know it's gluten-free. That's awesome. We do, we do a lot of baking, especially during pandemic too, but we use tons of gluten. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, what started me on it was, so my, uh, and by the way, this is the podcast. We're just going to talk and hang out. That's cool. Sounds great. So my, uh, my, my dad and my stepmom, they own like a, a clinic called Peaks of Health. They help people like achieve their, their best health and their physicians. And uh, they've had this business for 10 years and they started asking me questions about their data right? Like, you know, how do we find, like, we hear personas, we hear all this stuff, you know, it's like, how do we do that with our people? And so I started, I downloaded copies of their QuickBooks data and started reviewing their transactions for fun. And I learned about their business. And then they do all these like blood tests and stuff to find out people's sensitivities to vary. Like everyone has some sensitivity to everything you eat. It's just where it's at on the spectrum. And so I took these blood tests and I was like, oh man, like half my diet I'm like highly reactive to, and it suggests I stop eating those foods. So I did, and I just got like a lot more energy. That's awesome. I, I had a really bad back injury, and a lot of like chiropractors and people like that told me, oh, first thing you do is get rid of gluten, get rid of dairy. And so I did it, and I noticed no difference whatsoever. So <laughs> I, got my, I got my individualized test results as well. Did it say you were reactive though? No, we didn't do any okay. testing. I'm sure I'm, I'd be interested actually. Like the, the, this whole uh, pandemic is absolutely killing me as a data scientist. So if there was a, <laughs> if there was some more data certainty that I could go latch onto, it'd probably help me with, with my anxiety. Let's talk about <laughs> this. What, 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 what do you notice? What gets at you as a data scientist about this? Is garbage in, garbage out. The data being collected about caseloads is awful. Like in Ventura County, everybody freaks out on every Monday because the caseload went up. But that's only because they do all the tests on Monday for basically like, you know, 11.59 on Friday through the weekend. And so there's just this perfect little spike in the data. And, you know, if you know about how data works, you're like, oh, okay, this is like, you know, I need to do some normalization or something like that, or I need to zoom out a little bit. But, uh, you know, it's, it's things like that. And, and just like, what, what is the data? What is the test rate? How do you do the controls? And all the conclusions that are being drawn, like I would never stand behind. If, it was, if I was, you know, responsible for this data, I would be saying like, we don't know much. <laughs> yeah, we're still looking we in, in our process. Live in fear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm just not that type of person, right? Yeah. Like I'm just not a, a fear-driven fear individual. But I've trained myself to be somewhat optimistic. And when I'm not optimistic, I'm pragmatic. Or, you know, just try to be like first principles approach. But uh, yeah. fear doesn't, I guess what I've learned is that like I make decisions from the state that like I want results in. So like I'll make decisions when I'm like focused in a good mood or when I'm neutral, but when I'm like angry or distracted or fearful, I don't make decisions because those never end up well. No, that, that's really true. Actually, one of, huge part of sort of my reputation in my career is that like I am just positive. And I'm like, I've, we can do it. We can like take the hill. And if things go wrong, it's like, oh, well, let's try the next thing. 
you know, with, with, uh, with, you know, little, little pain. Like there was this famous meeting, famous in my world meeting at Microsoft where, uh, they had this thing called the ship room where everybody goes to ship room from the whole division. Cause you know, you have to like try to ship things all at once at Microsoft for some reason, nobody understands, uh, you know, circa 10 years ago, everything's I'm sure changed now. Uh, but there's the most like blamey backstabby <laughs> meeting in the whole company, because if you're the one holding up the ship, everybody looks at you and goes, Oh dude, like, you know, no, no good reviews for you. And uh, you know, something came up in that meeting that I'd done wrong. And I basically said like, Oh, let me go fix that. And I got up and left. And was like, what just happened? He didn't try with anybody else. <laughs> he just went and fixed it. That was weird. <laughs> yeah but i i always think of that as like I, I i noticed a change in how everybody looked at me after that then it's like oh that's that's the way to be yeah people respect discipline and they respect people yeah. who have a high bar of of quality for their work and that leads you or lends you perfectly to founding a company right uh yeah caring about quality is super <laughs> super important yeah yeah the founding of the company has uh most to do with like the fact that i had an, an opportunity in front of me that I felt like I understood better than anybody else in the world. It wasn't, wasn't so much like that I wanted to have a company or anything like that. I, I like, I like doing work. I like helping people, but it was like, Hey, I think this thing's happening. That's going to change the whole world. And I've been thinking about it two years longer than anyone else. What well, was uh, it? Well, that, that was this idea that we're going to reshape online ads to look like the financial market. Ooh, tell me more. So, so when we, uh, when I went to Microsoft, I didn't know anything about ads. I knew, uh, I knew about, uh, building scalable, reliable software systems. I'd been working on telephone systems, I, you know, voice over IP, six nines, reliability, crazy stuff like that. We, uh, you know, rented space in amazing cages with, you know, physical security and halo and all this stuff. Like I, you know, that was my world and I was like advertising. Okay. So how does this work? And, uh, as I, as I looked at it, you know, it was just really, really inefficient the way, the way everything worked, you know, you, you'd sort of like give some money to Yahoo and, and hope for the best was kind of how advertising worked at that time. Like my, my, my co-founder tells a story about he, he gave a hundred thousand dollars to Yahoo with certain targeting criteria and the campaign worked great. And he made a ton of money cause he was doing arbitrage, right? So if you sell more units than you had to pay for, then you actually pocket the money. And then he did the same buy with the same targeting criteria with $500,000 and it bombed and it wiped him out like way beyond anything that he made on the first one. And he's like, why, why did that happen? How come, you know, Yahoo screwed me, but, but Yahoo didn't screw him. Yahoo just didn't have any control over what was happening. They hadn't done the work to understand exactly what the properties of this commodity were that, that you were buying. They had some controls, but it wasn't really well-defined what it was. And so what we did is we, we said, well, let's go create a way to have an exchange where you understand all the properties of the commodity so you can have price discovery. And so it's the very, the very foundation of a financial market. It's like the New York Stock Exchange or the, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for, for online ads. That's what I built at Microsoft. And then about the second I was done with that, I was like, oh, I think this is going to be really powerful because now you can be super specific about the kind of ads you want to go after. And, you know, my, my brain's just spinning on all the things that you could do as a buyer in this world to, to create advantage for yourself. And I was like, okay, so if you look at the financial markets, Jeff and I were talking about this together. If you look at the financial markets, the New York Stock Exchange is not really the best business in the financial market. Goldman Sachs is. And so we started saying like, oh, I think all these corollaries are right. You know, I, I think that, you know, there, there's differences too, and it's human behavior. It's still going to be a little harder to quantify than oil or, you know, pork or whatever. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's slightly different. Uh, and then we also evolved pretty quickly to say like, well, let's not build Goldman because Goldman's a company that, um, you know, uses their own data to create benefit on their own behalf for their, you know, they're playing, they're playing on their own behalf and they're, you know, taking every advantage they can. Instead, what if we built like the Bloomberg terminal? So you build a system where you allow all of the buyers in the whole world to have all the rich metadata and make good decisions. And like, that's, that's the idea that occurred to us when we founded the company was, was all of that. And I was like, I don't think anybody else is thinking about this in this way right now. There, there's all these other companies in the space, but if we go build fast and if we build like a modern lean company, I think we can really win. And that was, that was how we started. 
That's amazing. I want you to bring it, bring it home for me a little bit. So I'm a small business owner. Uh, we run ads and, and, you know, on different platforms, but I can't connect. And, and I get the concept of what you're saying. Like they're two isolated topics in my head. Like I know what my experience is like when I'm running ads. And then I know what you're kind of explaining about this concept because I have a, a background in financial software. So I understand what you mean when you're saying like Bloomberg terminal. And so like, help me connect those. Like, why am I not running into your product um, mostly because it's difficult to use. So for the same reason, you don't have a Bloomberg terminal in the corner of your of your office. You, you work at the E-Trade or you get on Fidelity. Ca- I think Cabbage or... No, no, not Cabbage. Oh, okay. that, um, yeah. Robinhood. That Robin company Hood, is awesome. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a bunch of them that make it more accessible and that also like the, you know, we have high minimums. And, and so all those, you know, Bloomberg does too. And, and so we just, we sit deeper in the market than than the consumer typically does or, or even the small business owner does and that's really that's a strategic decision on our part in in wanting to have a smaller company you know i wanted to have a one or two thousand person software company not a two hundred thousand person ad agency so what are, what are they doing on the platform like i get this like you're i'm not connecting the dots and i really want to understand this because i like marketing um, yeah what are they actually doing like in that bloomberg terminal of yours so the main thing, the primary use case would be you have your business, you have uh, data from your website, you know who your best customers are, you also hopefully know who your second best customers are, and so on. You know, you, you've got like a good idea of the lifetime revenue of all of your customers because you've done your, your work. You can then take those and you can put them in our platform and we can say, okay, you've got 400 amazing customers. Let's go find everyone else in the world that acts substantially like them in terms of browsing behaviors. So it goes to the same kinds of sites, browses the same kinds of days, what, what, whatever, like you can, you know, you can do unsupervised machine, machine learning and just go say, what are, all the, what are all the other consumers that are likely great customers of yours? And then you can create a stack rank of them and just go put budget into, you know, getting in front of them and seeing whether then next step, see whether or not your creative causes them to come to your site, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So you create like a series of tests to go find new customers and and bring them in. And then once you've brought them to your website, then you have that direct relationship with them and you can do your thing on your site. That's not our part. The stuff you do on your site, it's up to you. That's MarTech in, in our world. We're, we're ad tech. That's a, there's a, a little bit of a line there just to try to keep us from trying to build everything. So, which is important to specialize. It seems like you've taken the like the custom audiences or lookalike audiences like on steroids. Like it's like you've extracted that single feature into like a whole more advanced business. Yeah. And that, and that's like, that's the easiest to understand example of what we do, but w- it's really very general. So you can construct any experiment you want to, to go buy media, see how it worked. And then also make sure that you're paying the right price for every impression. That's one of the key differentiators for our platform is we made it so that uh, we, we call it expressiveness. So you can, you can pay a specific price for every impression if you want to. That one's worth more than that one's worth less than that one, which is difficult to do technically when you're talking about, we look at like 11 million ad requests a second. And for your brand, if you wanted to spend a lot of money for you, $50,000 this month, I'd need to pick you like four of those. So, so getting from 11 million to four for, for every advertiser that wants to work for your platform is just a, it's a technical challenge. Like, like I'd never seen, you know, the, the implications for just how much Ram you need, how much compute you need to be able to do all that, just to be able to listen to 11 million ad requests a second requires a lot of sockets, a lot of servers, a lot of network. It's just all of that was a very, very fun challenge to solve. But so like just, just that basic thing that we do has a million applications for a marketer. And where, where are those requests coming from that you're listening to? It's every, everything you can possibly imagine. It's every web publisher. It's every app. It's uh, increasingly uh, audio connected television. The connected television boom is, is the story of the future of our company, really. Like everything, everything we've done so far has been a warm up for the big show which is like kind of doing, doing our same thing and, and bringing, you know, personalization and strong results into the, into the world of CTV where previously in linear TV, it was very much spray and pray. You just like would throw out ads to a national audience and say like, how'd it work? I don't know. Uh, market share went up by a quarter point, you know, it's really, really difficult to, to have much analytics in that world. And so 
you know, now with, with CTV, you can do things like manage frequency and make sure that you don't show the ad to the consumer too many times and annoy them. You know, just simple things like that are just so, so powerful. And then you also bring like some of this lookalike modeling concepts into putting ads into CTV. And what you get is uh, the ability to prevent what happened in cable from happening in CTV. So what, what, what happened in cable is there wasn't very good targeting and there was a bunch of oversupply and, and so you ended up having more and more ads laid into each hour of content over time to the point where it became unwatchable. You know, if, you, if you're used to streaming and you go back to cable, it's shocking what, what the ad load looks like. And if you let a company like ours do the targeting, we can pay a much stronger price per impression because we get the most out of every impression. We, we get a great result for the brand. And then the publisher only needs to show five or 10 ads an hour say something like that and so then we can have you know a, a really awesome user experience for for ctv that you know turns the flywheel even faster on getting everybody to move over into into, into connected television and just enjoying sort of the more modern world that we're living in the golden age of media as long as people can get back to acting the the golden <laughs> age of, of, of media will continue and i like the way that like the future is headed where the advertisements aren't the way they were when I was growing up, right? Because my daughter is three and whenever there's a, my wife doesn't do premium of anything. I do premium of everything because I cannot stand ads. Like I'm like premium on Pandora, premium on like all my services because I don't want my attention interrupted. And uh, I like my ads to be embedded in the content I'm consuming creatively to where like I don't even really know it's an ad because that's the best type of ad, right? It's like, what shirt is that guy wearing? I want that shirt. Like I should be able to click on that shirt and get it, you know? Uh, yeah. But my daughter, she, she's, uh, when the ad comes on for like, she's like watching Baby Shark or something and some ad for like home cleaning services come up. She goes, no, oh no, oh no. And it's like, that's exactly how I feel inside. And that's the future. Like nobody wants that interruptive type of advertising. Yeah, it's like what are what are the noble pursuits of advertising, it, right? It's it's connecting people with products that they're interested in, right? That that that's the 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 basic thing that we do, and you know we drive drive the economy in a a, a very real way. So it's, it's you know helping brands find new customers, helping consumers discover new products. That it's more of like of a, a discovery process than a bombardment process when it's done right. And yeah, you're right. Like the more, the more native they can be, the better, the more native they are, the harder they are to scale. So like what you're talking about, like the amazing, like I, it's a, imagine the amount of work it takes to put the shirt on the person and then have that in front of you, right? You can you know, compare to the process of like, well, let's, let's throw a creative in front of you that like we've modeled out that we think will kind of catch your eye and we'll keep it short. Like I remember when uh, a certain brand was running ads in a game I was playing and all of the other ads were 30 seconds and they ran a five second spot. I'm like, that's awesome. Thank you. And I remember your brand for that. That was cool. Like, you know, it's, it's little things like that that can make a big difference in the, the relationship and the trust relationship between a, a consumer and a brand. That's an, and that's an important thing that I think about a lot because I feel that trust relationship and I feel when it's eroded, like when the, the people's automation goes haywire and you get the same like, oh, hi, I'm your account manager from like seven different people or it's just like, oh man, that sucks. They need to get their, their stuff together. Or just even the shoes that follow you around the internet. Oh, like yeah. that, that's, that's, a, that's a very basic use case for the kind of technology that we have and one that we, we discourage pretty actively, the, the over-frequency to try to go get somebody who it was, the shoes were sh sitting in your shopping cart. You were probably going to come back and buy them. I wonder how many times you made people not come back and buy them with that kind of an ad. Cause they're like, forget it. Like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'm going to go buy it somewhere else. You know, the, you you have to be thoughtful when you're putting together an ad campaign because if you're just looking at the data and you're letting a machine make all the decisions, it's going to do what it's going to do, right? It's going to say like, oh, well, we tested it and the optimal frequency is 600 to, to you know, or whatever. Yeah. I believe there's somebody out there that has had those results <laughs> and they pursued uh, that. Oh, yeah. The outliers on those yeah. curves are like dramatic. It's really crazy. They purchased so the ad will go away. Well, hopefully you don't do that. I mean, so there is like, 
if you've seen the icon in the top corner of all of those ads, that's, that's one of the things that I helped pioneer to make sure that like there is a way to escape and to say like, I don't want this ad or I don't want any ads. So like that, that should all be at your fingertips if you're getting ads from any reputable company now. Is that that like ad choice thing? Ad, that ad I choices, yeah. Yeah, is, yep. that's pretty that, cool. That, yeah, we, we went to a lot of work to make that work and then Safari broke it. <laughs> and we, we we created a way to go set uh, first party cookies in every domain that that has anything to do with advertising to say like this person says they don't want ads and if somebody says they don't want ads I would rather not waste my money putting ads in front of them if you know so why why wouldn't I let them say that and now it no longer works in Safari which we're we're trying to trying to resolve so being in this ad tech world like what are your thoughts on do you, or do you have like deep thoughts on data privacy. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I, it's what I spend probably most of my time on at this point is is trying to help Google avoid making a mistake with their browser. Uh, and so I think that there is no real tension between uh, your actual privacy and the kinds of advertising that we want to do, that our brands want to do, that matters. So there was there was for a little while sort of an arms race towards. I'm going to be more specific than the company that was in here a minute ago pitching. Not only do I want to know if you went to Walmart, I want to know what side of the street you walked down, right? Like that stuff is insane. And that stuff leads to trust violations with, with the brands. So if Mercedes has spent, Mercedes says they take about 10 years to build a customer beginning to end. I can ruin that in one minute by freaking somebody out with a, you know, something creepy. And so like that, that never had any commercial value anyway. And so what we've been trying to do is like build these opt-outs. Let's go build frameworks for, for GDPR compliance, the European regulations that are, you know, along these lines, basically saying, can you guys be just a little less specific and do things that are, that are scaled and impactful that, you know, if you, if you look at the data that's being used to target you, at least in our platform, it's incredibly innocuous. If you looked at Facebook, Eight years ago, you might be a little concerned with what they were doing with your data, but they too have, have done a lot of work to say like, let's go create a ton of transparency. And then because we have transparency, let's go curtail some of the, some of the things that, you know, I don't think were done strategically, but more just done like by some small team with a project somewhere that we're like, Oh, that's a bad idea. So, you know, there's been, there's been an evolution towards transparency and towards uh, being benign with, with what we do with this data, because that's what's, what's best for everyone. And, you know, anything else puts all of this at risk. It puts, it puts journalism at risk and the funding that we're able to provide those newspapers. So we have a, we have a lot of responsibility to, to do the right thing. I found something new last week. It's called, um, I, it came through as an ad and, uh, it was called 1440. I don't know what the web, it might be, I think if you could Google it, it'll come up, but it's this concept of like unbiased, uh, news. So it, it like this, they have a story on their very simple website. You can like sign up, register to get the newsletter. It's like a daily thing. And they just put the like stories, but it's, they remove the bias from them. And it's just written like journalism. It's amazing when you're reading it. Cause it's like where it feels like a, like a glass of fresh water when you're in the desert. It's like, where has this type of content been? Uh, and it's a free, it's a free newsletter and I'm only like a week into it. Right. But it's so interesting how they they saw this gap in the market of like every news piece has just become the talking heads opinion and it's like where is the news being reported uh and so i really i really am enjoying it so far but it, it's a it's amazing about the the clarity that it can bring you to actually just get a set of facts or or get a set of the best knowledge we have today that's avoid a jab either side of the political system i mean journalism is just super important and, and even if you don't like what somebody's saying or you think they're biased like supporting that and making it possible is like the you know the foundation of our entire system <laughs> so uh, when it when it becomes hard for a newspaper to make money and they start laying off reporters that's a bad thing so it's something that we we talk about a lot is how do we make sure that uh, it, it's hard for all of the newspapers in the country to collect online subscriptions. It's hard for everyone to get people to subscribe because there are certain people that want things for free. Like, like you and your wife, like the, that is, yeah. that's a very, that's a very real thing. 
uh, I, I remember reading a statistic that in uh, Spotify, so Spotify free, Spotify premium, Spotify free is very aggressively defeatured mm-hmm. compared to the premium version. It's like, it's like almost, it, for me, it's really difficult to even use it versus Spotify premium to me is like one of my absolute favorite products ever made. Right. The, so the, the, the chasm between those is, is enormous, but something like 80% of their users opt for free. Yeah. And you think, and if you think about that from a news point, newspaper's point of view, if they can add fund effectively and not have a ton of ad load that, you know, distracts from the user experience and, and doesn't, you know, have like strangely biased ads laid down, like, you know, so there's some, there's some challenges you have to solve, but it makes it so that they can, they can fund their operation much more efficiently than they can, you know, asking consumers to sign up for yet another subscription. There's a huge amount of subscription fatigue out there. And, and so now if you think like, oh, well, so Netflix and some of these other services, your Hulus, those are a couple extra subscriptions. You could say that might be taking away some people's willingness to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And also, you know, they're not really writing stuff people want to read because there are individuals out there that are making six figures and they just host their own thing that they're writing about you know there's i can't uh, think of any of the names right now but i followed a couple people that do that they like write their own you know updates and they do their own journalism and they're they're making money it's just that the model shifted and they in the ones that are going out of business they just weren't creative enough to keep up it was like an institution that was put in place like a chain or something and they just didn't keep up with the creativity and the market shift it happens every day yeah, I mean that that's fair, but you know there are there are a, a lot of journalists out there doing a lot of hard and good work that works for newspapers. Still, I would say. Oh yeah, no, for sure, there there definitely are. I was just in my mind when I was talking about this, I was thinking about like my local newspaper, you know. Oh, okay. And I was just like, I have no interest in reading the content that that they put out. It's just for me, it's not that interesting. I don't know. So our our local paper here is actually interesting to me, at least because you know they're there are things happening here that are that are never going to be reported anywhere else. There is no outlet to talk about the controversy about the dam that we have up above, <laughs> up above Ojai and how the city down by the ocean has sued the city up on the hill because they got sued by the federal government, the Coastal Commission, to you know say that you're responsible for making sure that the fish can get upstream and then they go sue the people up there to say well it's your dam that's causing the problems like where where would i ever hear about that that's uh, true there, there there is no forum for that and that that's fairly interesting and then also like this pandemic stuff like i'm like how do i get more localized information like that's that's the most important thing to me is like what's going on here where did our cases come from and there's no like you know bing is kind of trying to roll some stuff up but bing is linking out to all of the local newspapers that are actually going and, and doing more in-depth reporting. Yeah. So I was just talking bad about my my newspaper. <laughs> yeah. in, in all fairness, you know, I'm, I try to be like as transparent as possible. I haven't read it in a, in a long time, but when I was trying to get into a news source, because it was just something like in my mid-20s, like 10 years ago, I was like kind of like interested in, you know, getting involved more. And I just remember like I went through a couple local papers and they seemed to all be just rehashing of what's in the national news and i was like or or like the front several stories were that and had i opened it up and it would have been like oh you know bradenton and sarasota are like rivals did a b and c um i would have probably been like way more hooked i also live in a smaller town i mean you're out in um yeah ventura it's about about an hour outside of la okay uh so why did you choose that place for your headquarters I mean, so because it's where I live, yeah. So, so this is this is just where I, I wanted to be. So it's sort of the other way around. Like I, I built I built my company where I am. If there is a strategic side to it, it's that uh, I wanted to be in my life and in my company removed from Silicon Valley culture a little bit, or or even Silicon Beach culture. You know, if you're in any of these sort of tech hubs, I feel like there's a lot of turnover. And there's a, a bit of a mercenary culture where it's it's totally okay to work somewhere for eight months and go to the next place and everybody's totally fine with that. And for this thing that we're building, this is really esoteric. Like it takes a it takes me eight months to get you productive <laughs> if I hire you as an engineer. And if people are hopping, it's gonna be it's gonna be really damaging. And then on top of that, I just have a, a really strong network of people here that I that I trust. And so I, I felt like we could get 
we could get our critical mass without having a whole lot of churn while we went through the, the most critical stage of the company, which is like ideation, getting to market and getting the profitability. Like that's to me, like in my worldview, those are the, the big milestones. And I thought we could do that sort of with mostly our local crew. Uh, and then uh, I had one of one of my local people move to Boulder, Colorado, during the first ish year, and he was sort of like, "What does this mean for my career?" And I was like, "Well, it means we have a Boulder office now." <laughs> and so we we opened the we opened the Boulder office with just a few people, but that caused us to get good at working remote. And so after that, it made it so that. You know, we could have engineering teams wherever we want. We got we got good enough at it that we now do. We have a San Jose office. We have a San Francisco office. We you know there's some great people there that we want to hire. We also have Seattle. We're in New York. We're in Sydney. Uh, we're in London. Like so, we're we're sort of like creeping around the world. We're in a Hong, we're in Hong Kong now with an engineering team. We're in Shanghai with an engineering team. Uh, and so that's been it's all been a really, I guess happy accident in a way like i can't i can't say i perfectly saw that strategy from the beginning but it's been really good to go into a bunch of smaller markets build awesome teams and then get good at remote is i think a really good strategy instead of you know going and posting up in foster city and hoping to peel off facebook employees is is a little more of a uphill battle <laughs> right as a, as a startup that nobody knows, like for a while, no matter how cool your company is, nobody knows who you are. And so recruiting is difficult. How did you pick the name? So we, we, we batted around and it was like, it was ad trade desk, ad data trade desk. We just, we really had this concept of, of trade desk as, as being the key thing that we wanted to do. And then we called it the trade desk, sort of like, it's not a trading desk, it's the trade desk. Like, you know, I don't know, a little bit of a line in the sand, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's just it, it's just what worked. And then you do that the, before you even found the company. You kind of have a vision. You pick a name, and then lots of companies change their name later on. And uh, we we talked about it in like year four. Why don't we do it? You know, because there, there's this there's this sort of like there are these things at agencies called trading desks. There's a, there's trading desks in the financial market. It's a little confusing. Why don't we do a new a new name? But I just think like enough. By then we had enough of a brand build. Enough people knew who we were. I was like, it's a step backwards and I don't, I don't really see the benefit. And so we just decided to, to, to stay the course. I think a lot of company renames are pretty lateral, right? <laughs> well, it's like, let's go in US and find that certain color palette. And yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so we, we, we just sort of ran with it. It just is. And now it's just us. It's, it's, it's TTD to us more than it even is the trade desk. Most of the time, it's just us. So did you have any like specific names that you were kind of leaning towards or do you just like completely put that out of your head? I, we came up with a big list and nothing worked for me. And so I didn't, I didn't, I didn't keep them anywhere in here. <laughs> so you seem like a pretty disciplined uh, individual. Would you say that's true? Um, I, I'd say I'm, uh, I'm driven. Driven. I like, yeah, like I, when, once I decide I want something to happen, I, tend to get pretty focused on making it happen. You could call it obsessive. It's like a sort of kinder, gentler obsessive. Yeah. <laughs> obsessive got a bad rap. And so we had to find like a different way to say it. Yeah. Well, obsessive can be crippling for people. So I don't want to use that word lightly, but you know, I think a lot of engineers have a, a little bit of that, you know, the advanced you, focus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like we, once we, once, once we get our, our mind on something, it's sometimes hard to, have us think about anything else and honestly that's what drives success i mean your ability to focus and have you know tunnel vision and achieve the result is i don't know i think it's an important it's gotten me you know pretty far in life <laughs> yeah yeah it's super important and so is so is long-term thinking and that's another thing that i would use to describe myself as i usually try to think about like how it's all going to play out and then let's go in that direction and then you can you can kind of suffer the the wounds along the way a lot easier if like you're not just thinking about the thing right in front of you. And so, you know, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. If you're going to build something big and you need to be okay with failure, you need to actually kind of like have a good relationship with failure. And you just, if you fail, you learn, keep moving. And you know, those, those things go together to, to make it so that you're kind of like using, you're using every day to create momentum towards a goal. And if you can yes. just do that consistently over time, you get where you're going. Do you have any little uh, things that you know, 
heuristics or ideas or frameworks that help you. For me, I'll give you an example. Like I started, I just finished about two years ago, I finished my first five-year plan. And so like I'm into my second five-year plan ever. But before that, I had like no plans or I had like a monthly goal or I had like a wish list. And then I, you know, I'd heard some, I got into the personal development space and heard people talking about this. And I was like, all right, well, let me create a five-year plan where I can do like the James Clear atomic habits and like say, you know, be very intentional about the habits I have and how I spend my time throughout my week and how that aligns to where I'm trying to go in five years. And it is uh, very rewarding. There was a time in my life. So when I was at Microsoft, actually, like I, I needed that job and it, it, like I, yeah, I had a fresh mortgage and like, you know, it was out of work and I'm in a small market, like it had to work. And so I got to the point where I was like breaking my day down into 15 minute segments. And at the end of 15 minutes, I was like, did you use that as well as you could? And you can't do that in the long term. Like that's, that's a level of intensity that I don't think is sustainable for almost anyone. But it is a good thought process to say like on whatever, whatever grain like I can handle without stressing myself out. Is that the best thing I could have done with that time? is just a, a great thing to think about and to, and, and to course correct. I think bigger than that though, like that was, that was when I needed to really push. And that is something that I still think about, but, but much more macro. I, I like to think about what is the one important thing about solving any problem because you know, when, when you look at a problem and if you come up with a solution, it's got like 20 facets to it. That's pretty fragile. Right. Then, and if you, you're getting all wow, you're figuring it all out. And some people, some engineers in particular, love that kind of thing. Like I've thought of everything, every corner case, I locked it all down, and it's all it's all figured out, right? But I, I've found that those solutions tend not to work, and that if you can step back and think about what's the one thing that's going to change this game, and make sure I get that right, and then just don't even bother with the rest of it, and then move on to some important thing for some other component. So you know, much more a much more pulled back macro view to solutions. I think is way more effective and learning to let go of some details, having confidence that you got the right thing, right. I think is what drives a lot of, it's what drives a lot of sort of agile methodologies and, and success of a lot of companies that adopt them. So what does your team look like today? Big, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, before this, my biggest team was seven people. Now I think I've got about 400 reporting up into me. Um, but what we've done starting with like when it, when it became too big to be one team right then I said, like, I, I really think I believe in scrum or, or Kanban or whatever you want to call it. Like the, the, the concept that you take your overall problem and you break it into pieces that are, that are discrete, that can be, you know, executed on truly autonomously. And then you staff a bunch of people onto it and you get out of their way. Uh, you're, you know, given, given their resources, it's a PM, it's a dev lead and it's X devs and just go and you know what to do and talk to me if you think I'm wrong about what we're doing or if you need clarification, like that is the total engagement of, of senior staff with that team, I think is super effective. And so we've tried to stay as close to that as possible as we've grown. We've, we've changed some things from that, but we, we typically have 12 to 20 scrum teams running at any given time. We, we have come back in and changed some reporting structures. So it, about the time we got to 200 devs, we, we decided it was really important to make sure that the most junior developers were working on the same thing as their boss, because otherwise it's just so hard to grow. If you come straight out of college and, and your boss is managing a bunch of people that are working on 10 different projects, there's just a there's a loss there that we needed to come back and get. But that's that's really the only change we've made other than, you know, changing what the teams are in a really organic way over time. So we've had like a monthly planning meeting for 10 years where we come together, we decide what we're going to do and we disperse and, and go after it. And it, it really, it really works. It's uh, It's in a lot of ways a lot easier than the top down lazy approach to engineering management but you definitely have to be okay with a loss of control and you have to have a good relationship with failure because there will be mistakes. How do you ensure that you always have like top talent coming up through your organization? Well, so the, the way I always talk to people about our company was I want to, if you would be the CTO at some startup, that's who I want working for us as engineers. 
And, and so I want to create an environment where people like that can thrive. And so people like that thrive on autonomy and on impact. And that's the same thing that I want, right? So now our incentives are all really well aligned. And I need, to, I need to go find you a challenge. I got somebody that's bored. Go find them a challenge. Great. All right, that's an amazing problem to have. Instead of like, I have people who I've given something to and they're like, oh, I don't know how or I don't care enough. I, they, so you optimize, optimize for those things. And so we really just, it's really a matchmaking process. Interviewing is matchmaking, right? We, we, we've constructed an a interview process that if you enjoy it, you're one of our people. If, if you're, if you don't, it's very unlikely that you're going to be successful here. Tell me a little bit. Yeah. Well, yeah. So we, um, we do some basic things to do vetting, but then as soon as we're like, Hey, this, this could be good. We get into a, a coding exercise that, uh, that keeps getting published on the internet. I'm going to change it. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a coding exercise that doesn't have an obvious solution or, or there are several solutions and it's pros and cons between them. It's, there's not like one gold star. And so you do your thing, you send it in. We say, do your best work. Take however long you want, send it to us so we can see what your code looks like and you know, sort of like what tools you use. You get a little sense from that. But then, unless it's just terrible, uh, <laughs> and we end the process there, we get into a code review with a manager. And people who enjoy the code review process, and when the, the engineering manager says, hey, did you think about doing it this other way? And they're like, oh, that's a great idea. I didn't think of that. Like, that's, a, that's something that says like, hey, you know, that's the kind of person that we want to work with. You're intellectually curious. You're open. And uh, now, now I'm giving it away. Everybody knows how to ace the test. <laughs> if they're smart enough to track you down and listen to this episode, they already have some points. That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll let it go. I'll let it go. You've, <laughs> you've, you've earned it. You know, I, I do think it's hard to fake though, like because we have a, a really deep intellectual conversation. And then on the far side of that, we get into interviews. Uh, so it is, it is harder for us to hire than I think a lot of other companies with that. It's slower, but we've been able to find people that have had really long-term success with us and for us. I like that process. I haven't, I haven't heard that before. That's pretty unique. And, you know, to the people who don't fit that profile, they wouldn't even want to try to take your test because they wouldn't want to be in that world. They don't want to be in that environment. It's people who are attracted to it. And they're like, that's me. I want to go there and take that test because I, I, I believe that I fit into that mold. Yeah. Let me, let me show them what I got. Yeah. Like that's, that's a, that's a first marker of uh, what, what we're looking for is a little bit of, a little bit of fire. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, but then really, I think the biggest, the biggest thing that we get out of that is we, we screen defensiveness. I think defensiveness is the worst characteristic you can have as an employee, but particularly as an engineer, when what we're we're trying to do is facilitate an open exchange of ideas and and everybody building on each other's ideas and and having that, that, you know, that great flywheel. If you have somebody that's like, you know, Oh, my way is the only way and you're wrong and they're dug in. It's just, it, it has a, it has like a much bigger effect on the team than even just them performing badly. Yeah. That, it's like that defensiveness is it's not good, but I'm trying to think about like how that he grow. I used to be like not a great person. And so <laughs> I come from being like not an awesome person. And then I, I heard this guy speak and uh, I think it was like a YouTube video or something, but he had said the most frustrating thing in life is expecting above average results without being an above average person. And when I, when I heard that, you know how some things just stick in your mind, that was like a slap in my face in my like early twenties. I was like, I I have these results that I want, but I'm not that person. I'm not taking those actions or living my life that way. And so I just changed everything about myself systematically, consistently over time and and just improved in in all the different areas. But yeah, I I guess I moved the movement I made was like from defensive to, to curious you know, like, oh, like, why, why did they interpret it this way? Or, or like, I'm curious to know more about this. And, and yeah, that's that. I think that was a big transition for me too. And I, and I like it because I am a curious person. I just didn't, I think even before I didn't even uh, know how to express it, you know? So I guess I was defensive because I, I didn't understand myself. That's, there's you, something interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you, your defensiveness was a bad habit that you didn't know was hurting you. Yes. 
Yes. Right. And so if you can, if you can get people to, to stop doing that, you're doing everyone a huge favor because like defensiveness is, is never productive. You know, our, our, our VP engineering talks a lot about growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Like w- whenever you say, you know, that person can't do whatever, just put a yet on the end of it <laughs> and w- whether that's you or them. And if you just think about it that way, it's like, well, so what activity do I have to create to change the way I think about that or to help that person you know, do better, at, you know, whatever I've identified as what I think their weakness is, and we'll see if they agree or not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If you can get into those, those habits of growth, it, it can be super powerful. I heard that they're actually teaching growth mindset at some elementary and middle schools. That's good. Yeah. I heard, I had, I'd asked someone, I was like, this is amazing. I love this, th- these concepts. I was like, how do we get this stuff to our, our kids early? Cause I, I have some little ones and uh, he's, he had said, I think he was in California too. He said, yeah, my kids came home and asked me if I knew what the growth mindset was and they were in elementary school. And so they're already learning it. I said, that is brilliant. Could you imagine what life would have been like if we were taught the growth mindset in elementary school? Yeah, I mean, we all we all got there eventually. Like, yeah. our, our, I think our, our generation is doing an okay job of of getting there, but it, it can it can certainly help. They're also teaching coding in all those schools, which is amazing. I know, I know. They have the coding uh, on the tablets. They have like the coding playground that comes installed on some of the tablets, and it's just it's so amazing. I guess that's why I'm also a premium person, is because the first several years of my programming career, I was only learning from free resources. And then I paid for a resource and I was blown away by how much better it was paying for premium content. And I'm like, wow, you can learn a lot faster and move yourself forward quicker by going with the premium stuff. You know, one of the, one of the reasons I work hard in, as an engineer is I'm just so angry that things don't work better. <laughs> uh, you know, when, 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 I, when, I, when I grew up, it was like the year 2000, there's going to be flying cars and, you know, you're going to talk to your microwave and it's going to do the right thing. And, None of that is true. None of that is remotely true in 2020. And it's just so uh, frustrating because I think those things can be true. And so I think it's great that we're teaching coding and engineering in schools because there is so much work to do if, if we're going to achieve all those things that I think we all want to and that I think can you know, have huge impacts on society. Like there's a lot, a lot of work to do. It's, you know, it's the 80, 20 rule, right? We're, we're not even to 20 yet on the 80, 20 rule. And there's all that work left to do to make, to make basic things just work together. Right. Like, you know, there's a couple of wins. I'll point to a couple of wins. USB. USB is a huge win on making things work together. Well, like the other day, my power went out and I plugged my phone in with a USB to charge it. And I turned on its hotspot to power my Wi-Fi. That's how technology should work. Yes. Right. And it's so rare. I have so few examples of things like that where like companies, different companies made things that really work together perfectly. Like the way you'd expect right away. That, oh man, don't get me started. That is true, especially when it comes to hardware. It's true of everything. Oh man, if you, if you get into my world, into platforms and making platforms try to work together, oh dude, it's not even, that's not even hard interoperability and nobody bothers building the APIs to make it work. <laughs> Oh man, I think there's a, um, I think there's an Alexa powered microwave. I wonder if that exists. And then maybe, maybe I'll give that to tell your wife about that. And then you'll be for your birthday. You'll be able to talk to your microwave. <laughs> and, and, well, but how well does it work? Cause you know it what doesn't. my bar is. <laughs> I, I don't, I just, I'm sure there is a microwave that will take some sort of voice instruction, but I, I no, doubt it does the right It's thing not going to be default. the magic how we like you, you imagine it in the future. Uh, where like the you install like the fat and protein cartridges and it prints your food, you know that would be pretty cool. I'll take I'll take heat a cup of water until it boils. Yes, <laughs> that's what you'll take. All right, I think Alexa could do that. I don't think it can. You don't think, don't it, think can? it can? I think it could it could microwave it far past the point where it boils. I very much doubt that it has the right sensors to detect the boil. Oh, but if you know the current temperature and you know you know the current temperature through geolocation, right? Because you know where the microwave is, right? Well, then you'd have to you'd have to be hooked up to like your nest to know what it's what the temperature is inside. But you could probably get pretty close by knowing the temperature of the environment and then knowing and then knowing how long you have to heat to make altitude, the mass of the cup, the dissolved solids in the water. Like there's variables. There's variables. You really need, well, you really need is a thermal sensor. Yes, you do. It's, <laughs> it's the one important thing. If you have I was a trying sensor, to get around you know the temperature. <laughs> I was trying to get around that requirement. 
that's what is that was a great example of what we were talking about earlier yeah you, <laughs> you need if you just had the thermal sensor that solves everything that's like the one thing so you need an alexa microwave powered microwave thermal sensor and then the ability the software ability for, for her to connect that yeah, and then we'll we'll build a machine learning model to understand the size of the object and the way that the heat radiates through the object because you're only going to get a surface object off your sensor what's your tolerance for how close the time has to be to boil because like does it have to be persistently boiling for more than like three seconds like what do you consider a, a full boil uh, i mean we're getting detailed into requirements now yeah i would say i would say i want a full rolling boil sufficient to make black tea okay. without without evaporation to the level that would ruin my cup of tea Ooh, all right <laughs> so I, I need like i need like five milliliters max evaporation and a rolling boil there you go <laughs> we're doing it get the interns on it <laughs> Ship it, Amazon. <laughs> Ship it right now. Stop the pandemic response. Let's get this Amazon microwave out there to the world. No, but it is going to be a long time before uh, you know all of our devices are connected seamlessly because you know, I'm sure there's like a smart fridge where you can get something connected and there's a small benefit. And I like to see it moving forward. But much much similar to you, I am there is like this this underlying drive slash frustration that I I desire that I like want it. I want the future to come faster. I look forward to that. Um, personally, I hope that we reach, I hope that Neuralink type technology allows us to persist our consciousness prior to my expiration. You know, I think that'd be pretty cool. Uh, good. I don't know about that one, but <laughs> you don't know about that one. <laughs> I just don't know if it's going to get there. Uh, I think the way we started that conversation, we were talking about coding in schools. And, and so I think that is, that is the way to, the way to think about it that makes me optimistic, which is I think there's a, a tremendous amount of work to do that is powerful and we can teach all of the kids to do it. So we can, we can have women and people of color in our software engineering workforce at much higher levels than we have today. And that, you know, that the you know, strong wages and the, the sort of the flexibility of work from home and all the cool things that come with tech work can be super democratized, especially now that we're kind of like emptying out San Francisco in the pandemic and everybody's working from home, I think those can be super positive things for, for the whole world. And just for, you know, sort of um, helping do our little, our little part to improve equality. Yeah, it's important. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things about your like one-on-ones and uh, you know, high potentials. Like how do you, how do you approach one-on-ones? Um, I'm not, I'm not the best at this. So like, I, that's why we have a VP engineering who is, is that um, my one-on-ones tend to be conversational and, but, but focused on like the things that, the things that we care about. So like number one in the one-on-one, I want to connect as a person. I want to like have at least a moment to, to check in on people and know how they're doing. I think that's an important part of work that you, you can't ignore. You can't be all business all the time. Uh, you know, but then mostly what I want to do is talk about principles and, and the, the things that the things that we're trying to do at, at the highest level. What what really are we trying to accomplish rather than, hey, you know, when's this going to get done and any, anything like that. And, and now, especially my uh, my job is to lead by example and to try to help all of our managers not be micromanagers and instead to, to, to talk in principles to help reinforce the vision of what we're trying to do and and then of course to deal with whatever's going on in people's careers and make sure that i'm opening up opportunities so so i very much believe in servant leadership and engineering management management is a different job it's not a better job uh it's not a job that's right for every person and somebody once told me like one in one in ten engineers makes a good manager i think that's overstated <laughs> Just because it's it's very different, and you really do have to be focused on the success of the people around you more than yourself to be a great manager. You can be an okay manager without that, but there's no great manager that doesn't have that mindset. Yes, I agree. I I made the transition um, out of the desire to, or out of the uh, awareness that I can only write so much code, and I want to make changes to this world, and if I can learn these skills of management so I can work with people to achieve a result greater than myself, then I can have a greater impact. And that to me was like, 
it, you know, I, I wrote code uh, every day for 17 years. And, you know, up until the, the, the podcast got more popular last year, and I, I stopped writing every day uh, for work. So it was like a big, like a big thing. It was a huge part of my identity, the fact that I was an engineer and wrote the software. And I felt like every step away from that was like losing part of that identity. So I had to find a way to like think about it and, and put a, put a thought pattern behind it. And that concept of I can accomplish more Then I realized once I got into that perspective, I realized that is really what drove me to be an engineer in the first place. That first time I wrote code that like caveman aha moment, they're like, Oh my God, I did that. I actually impacted the screen. I did something. I made something happen. I performed a calculation. It was just so cool to me. And it was that feeling. And I said, wow, that's like this underlying driving factor. So I'm going to tap into that. And then that's how I uh, managed to to make that transition and be like maybe the one in 20, right? Yeah, I, I often say like to me, software languages are like hammers and nails. Like I, I don't really care about hammers and nails. I want to build houses. And you can't build a house by yourself, let alone a skyscraper. Dude, that was amazing. That was like mic drop. I really like the way you describe that. Yeah, I really and so do. So when somebody's asking me whether I like Python or Perl better, I'm like, you're asking me the wrong question. <laughs> yeah. Do you like two stories or skyscrapers? <laughs> yeah, right. What, what, what are we building? Yeah. That is so true. That is actually, I really like that perspective. I'm going to make a clip of that. That sounds good. Yeah. Ooh. And Dave, anything else we didn't cover today? Yeah, no, I'm, uh, what didn't we cover today? Anything you want to get out to the world? Careers page. You have a careers page. Some of the people that like your style, maybe they want to go check out more and go through that interview process. Yeah, yeah, we do trade desk careers for sure. So yeah, I mean, so I guess anybody, anybody out there that's that's listening, I think hopefully the main thing you heard from me was about the way to do modern software engineering, and and to embrace that world, to embrace remote to embrace whatever form of agile works best for you and to embrace an, an employee forward management style. Like that, that's something that I think people don't really understand is how much you get for what you give when it comes to, to working with your teams and working with your engineers. And if you put people first, you get way more. Like, and, and so even if you are only focused on what you get, the right way to, to achieve that is to is to put people first to invest in their careers and invest in them and people will always remember that and they'll they'll work way harder you know some people some people were down on millennials for a while and hopefully <laughs> people have figured out that that's totally wrong because all millennials want is a mission to work for and if you give them something they believe in they'll work the, themselves to the bone you know then and that's what they thrive on and that's what their success thrives on so just understanding that I think actually helps you understand all people. That's not just a millennial thing. That works better on everybody. It's just, you know, help them help them understand something that is exciting. Don't try to make something exciting. Give them something that is exciting and, and give them the tools to go build it and all the success, success will flow from that. I love that. Uh, there's this concept or this book about like meeting 100 people. And it's this idea that, uh, and I didn't read the book for disclosure. Somebody was telling, I was talking, I was giving a talk and I think like in Georgia and somebody told me about it. And uh, basically when you go out and you meet like a hundred plus people and get to know them, all of a sudden color, sex, age, all of those things fade to the background and it all becomes this uh, segmentation by mindset. By like how people think these these ways people think and so when you get with them you can kind of figure out okay these people think this way and you can identify with that you can know how those operating procedures go and uh to your point exactly like uh with the millennial stuff once i was giving this this talk it was actually in, in the georgia i think and uh it was to an older group and they asked me about like why like one of their questions in the q a was like why are millennials like why do they suck or like why are they distracted or something? And I said, um, I said, well, I think in any group of people, there are some people who suck <laughs> and maybe you're just running into those, but we have this obsession, I think as a, as a species of really amplifying the exceptions. I don't know if you've picked up on this, but I have, it's like, it's like, oh, things are mostly this way, but it's not cause it's one time that way. And then we try to like amplify like the one time it's different. And I think that that's like, 
it's a little bit noisy and it kind of is a disservice to us when we're trying to wrap our minds and create models of the world. And it's just something that I picked up on, you know, in the past couple of months that I noticed happening a lot. Like, have you noticed that? You know, I, the way I think about the the millennial thing is different than that, which is which is that there there actually has been a big change in the way that people respond to authority, in particular. Just and it's just generational. Like if you uh, a successful manager at IBM in the 1980s had a certain style, that style doesn't work anymore on anyone, and so it, it kind of started with younger people and this is how the world works right younger people have a little different thing than the the generation before them based on their experience based on their reaction to what what came before them and uh they're just not going to respond well to you know the sort of browbeating tell them what to do <laughs> management style they have to be led and so then all the it creates an interesting dynamic where now you have a bunch of older people in positions of power that now have to adapt and i think that's where a lot of the the weird rhetoric comes from is that there's people that don't want to adapt don't think they should have to think other people should adapt to them and uh, that's just not how the world works i like that that's pretty interesting you give me a lot of stuff to think about by the way i like your perspective because i really value it and it's like whenever you respond it's like something i didn't think about but it's like slightly different and uh that doesn't happen a lot so i like you my friend <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks. This has been, this has been great. This is awesome. Yeah. And then if you ever need anything like introductions to past guests or anything at all, never hesitate, just reach out and we'll hook you up with whatever we can do. Very good. Thank you so much, Dave. You have a fantastic day. Thanks. You too.